All right, so we're going to think about creation today and uh, next Sunday as well. Today we're looking more big picture at creation, um, and next Sunday we'll, we'll focus more on uh, the creation of humans, their vocation, and so forth, although we'll touch on that a little bit today. Uh, I've really liked how we've been using the, the quadrilateral to, to help us. I think it's just a great... Um, I don't know, a, a great strategy for thinking about difficult ideas. So let me just sketch some of my thoughts or maybe where I'm going. So scripture, tradition, reason, experience. If we're thinking about uh, creation, so our scripture for today, or our, our main focus, we'll be thinking Genesis 1. But as we're hearing Genesis 1, uh, we'll also be thinking about some other texts like John 1, or we find in Colossians 1. So, because I tend to conflate the two, here is John 1. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. Or Colossians 1. All things were created by Him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. Whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, dot, dot, dot. So, as we're focusing on Genesis 1 today, we're also going to be aware of how other scriptures help us understand Genesis 1. Uh, And part of the reason I bring this up is there is some ambiguity in the Hebrew my Hebrew is really rusty now, but people who know Hebrew better than I. Uh, there is some ambiguity in Genesis 1 about whether Genesis 1 is teaching creation from nothing or whether it's more focused on how God is fashioning uh, the materials that are at hand. So John 1 and Colossians 1 clarify whatever Genesis 1 is saying. Absolutely Christian conviction, God created from nothing. There is nothing that has existed alongside of God. So an important idea there is Scripture is helping us understand Scripture. Uh, When we get into uh, the tradition side of things, we might think of... Man, our markers are terrible, aren't they? Uh, The rule of faith, the biblical plot line. Does anyone carry a spare um, marker with them? Um, Man, that is terrible. All right. So, yeah, nothing else needs to be said. Uh, So, we might think uh, how rule of faith we're thinking may be major kind of consistent Christian teaching across the centuries. So, something like we might see represented in, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, but this is uh, one of these confessions of faith that churches throughout the centuries, across geography, uh, across denominations have said, yeah, we're, we're good with this. Even in the Church of Christ roots, Alexander Campbell says, yeah, to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and it's something that says, for instance, I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. So it's, it's um, again, giving us some, some ways to think about how we're reading Genesis 1. It's kind of confirming Father as creator. Uh, the biblical plot line. We might think, as we're listening to Genesis 1, how this plot line of creation to brokenness to redemption 
might even help us think all the way back at the front. You know, when you read a story, and you get to the end, and all of a sudden, you can read it again, and you see things you may have missed. So, if we know what, how God is going to redeem creation, it might even shed some light on what he was doing in creation to begin with. Um, and then, what's very clearly written here, uh, the history of interpretation. Uh, we're not bound by what other Christians have, have um, how they have read these scriptures, but it's at least wise to pay attention. And one of the interesting things in the history of interpretation uh, with something like Genesis is, thank you, Matt, um, is how uh, even early Christians were saying, Genesis 1 is kind of funny. Um, is, could this possibly be literal? I think Origen is like, surely we can't think these seven days are seven literal days. I mean, there's not even a sun you know, to, to mark evening and morning. Maybe something more is going on here. So when you hear certain Christians saying, maybe we don't push this too literally, you don't need to see that as, oh, there must be react, reacting to Galileo or Darwin or something like that, Big Bang Theory. You might say, oh, actually, Christians have been thinking uh, that there is already something kind of ambiguous going on here. So it gives us as Christians some, maybe some room to agree to disagree on certain things. Notice, we can't, we must agree on something like God as Father and Creator, uh, but we might agree to disagree on the exact mechanics of that That's and the timeline, as other Christians have done before. Um, if we think on the experience side of things, uh, we, we enter, um, I mean, our own experiences, I think we can recognize the great beauty these kind of moments of awe and wonder at creation. Um, and, and it suggests um, that creation is more than this kind of material thing that just is accidentally here, but there is something beautiful here. Uh, but sometimes creation also seems terrible uh, and destructive. And, and so we might be thinking, how does our experience of the, the great beauty and awe-inspiring sense of nature uh, go hand-in-hand hand with the destructiveness. And how does that shape the way we think about creation? Or um, maybe even scientific discoveries. What do we do? Fossil evidence, DNA evidence, uh, what seems to be the expansion rate that points to the age of the universe, those kinds of things. Um, how might that get us thinking about what's going on in Genesis? All right, so it's, it's a little muddled. So it's both muddled and restricted. Scripture is helping us have some restrictions about, yes, it must be saying something like this. The rule of faith gives us some restrictions, um, but the, some of the ambiguity gives us also some wiggle room uh, about what we're doing and all this. Um, and then if we get to reason, maybe I'll say two things there, and then it'll take us a little more specifically into Genesis 1. Um, most uh, I think Christian theologians expect that God's revelation in Scripture is going to somehow align with God's revelation in nature. Um, that is, uh, if we do, if we're kind of learning about nature, if we're doing scientific work, uh, we should expect how God reveals himself in the nature he's made to not be just completely at odds with how he reveals himself in Scripture. Um, so again, that, that gets us thinking, well, what do we do with uh, some of the scientific ideas about Big Bang and evolutionary theory, uh, which seems to be 
what is revealed through science, at least through many uh, who live in those worlds, and what we get in Genesis. So all that creates a little bit of tension. And finally, that's going to, uh, my final point that's going to take us into this, is that uh, to read in a way where we're, we're kind of being thoughtful is to pay attention uh, to how God was speaking. <coughs> so we, we notice how God was speaking uh, to uh, the, maybe we'll say, original audience. In other words, it seems wise, reasonable, that the best way to read Genesis 1 is to take into account uh, the situation uh, that, of the original audience that he was speaking to. How does the language, the genre, and so forth uh, maybe help us better tease out what's going on in Genesis 1? So, how am I doing on time? Okay. So, a couple things we might look at then, particularly... Oh, the black one a problem? Keep going to it. It's my default. Um, two things to help us here. Genre clues uh, and the socio-cultural situation. So, genre shapes interpretation and the socio-cultural situation shapes how we read. So, what genre is Genesis 1? I had my, uh, my undergrad students, I'm teaching a class on Genesis. What genre is Genesis 1? So if we haven't already said this, really briefly, um, different genres have different expectations for how you interpret it. You don't treat poetry the way you treat law, the way you treat narrative, the way you treat prophecy, the way you treat apocalyptic. There's just different expectations. So if you try to read poetry uh, in the way you read law, you've got some, some real problems because you're trying to make metaphor uh, be literal. I'm sure there's a better word than literal, but um, okay. Uh, so what poetry is, or what, what genre is this, and how does, that, how does that teach us how to read Genesis? Well, in one sense, there's a kind of poetic structure to Genesis 1. Uh, you've got this repetition. God said, God called. There was evening and morning on this day. God said, God called. There was evening and morning on this day does this like six or seven times. Um, there's also this structure where days one, two, and three have this correspondence to days four, five, and six. Light, day one. Sun, moon, and stars, day four. Uh, sky and sea, uh, day two. And then what fills that? Birds and fish, day five. Land, day three. Day six, land animals and humans. Uh, which this kind of structure gets us thinking, okay, maybe... Genesis is teaching us something about the orderliness of how God created. Um, and we, if it's got this kind of poetic, artistic structure, we may be a little wary of pushing this too literally. That's what we've been taught from the history of interpretation. Be a little wary of this. The genre might even point us to be a little wary of this. All right, here's, I'm going to maybe step on a couple toes here. Um, but there's something um, also that has this kind of folk story feel to it about Genesis. Uh, your main characters, Adam and Eve, their names mean something like human and life. So if I was going to tell you a story and my main two characters are human and life, it might make you think, oh, maybe this is more than just a straightforward, literal historical account. Especially when you add in a talking snake um, and when you add in uh, God walking, which we don't think of God really have a body, walking in the garden 
and breathing into Adam when we don't think of God having lungs. So there's these things that make you think, maybe, maybe something uh, else is happening here. And this gets really, this really kind of comes, comes out when you pay attention to other, in that sociocultural world, other stories that were circulating around that area and around that time, uh, where you've got, for instance, a snake that steals, that steals the fruit of immortality. You've got uh, gods uh, at war and creating, and humans are not dust and the breath of God, but clay and the blood of a god. You hear some of the parallels there? Um, and so you, it sounds like maybe, this is, I'm just going to say, here's what I think is going on in Genesis 1, mm-hmm. is it's not giving us a kind of scientific account of the precise uh, mechanics and timeline of creation, but it's rather taking a particular kind of genre, a particular motif about where we came from and saying, this is how you guys tell the story, where creation comes in violence, where humans are made to be the slaves of the gods, where the gods need humans, um, uh, where uh, whatever it might be. But here's how we would tell that story as we know God. God did not create because he needed someone to supply food for him. He was already fully sufficient. God did not create humans to be slaves, to do the menial task that he didn't want to bother himself with. But God created humans and gave them dignity as the image of God and gave them vocation. Creation didn't arise in the violence of one God killing another God and uh, kind of forming the earth from it. But instead, creation came from this one transcendent God speaking and bringing it into existence. You know how powerful that is and how it might speak? Um, so, how's my time here? Two minutes left. Um, so, I think uh, that's part of what's going on. And you might say, well, why didn't God just give them a scientific account? Why the six days of creation? Well, let me suggest that it's because they maybe couldn't handle something more specific. And let's be honest, neither could we. What if instead of the six days of creation, he gave us the four stages of the universe? So here is the chronology of the universe from Wikipedia. Imagine this was your Genesis 1. In the first picosecond of cosmic time, during which currently understood laws of physics may not apply, the emergence and stages of all four known fundamental actions or forces, first gravity and later the strong, weak, and electromagnetic interactions, the expansion of space and supercooling of the still immensely hot universe due to cosmic inflation, which is believed to have been triggered by the separation of the strong and electroweak interaction, dot, 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 and that was the first stage. And on the second stage of the early universe, you can see why... This is why God didn't do it. He wasn't saying, you need to know this scientific timeline and mechanics. You need to know about who I am and who you are and how that speaks against a culture and against a view uh, that is problematic. Who is God? He is this transcendent being. He is one. There is not many. He is in control. There is not things out of his control. He is benevolent. He is not enforcing slave labor. Who are we? We are not made out of violence to be menial servants, but we are dust mortal and yet we have God breathing his image into us we've been given dignity and vocation what is this world is this this broken place of chaos or is it God's good world uh, that even comes across as though he's constructing a temple where he might dwell with his people what's wrong with the world is it just that the world is chaotic anyway or as we're going to get to later know the real root problem is sin so he's taking they're taking these motifs this, this, as it's working in the genre and the sociocultural situation. It's not so much getting at the scientific mechanics and timeline, 
but it's saying here's who God is, here's who you are, here's what's going on in the world. And to maybe flesh that out a bit more, I'll hand it over to Lauren. Okay, uh, I'm going to add a text to our scripture box here, which I'm just going to let Matt be my scribe, if that's okay. Um, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is my resting place? All these things my hand is made and so all these things are mine, says the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. So in this text, um, God is responding to humans who want to build a house for God, a temple. But God is saying what to them? I'm curious, what do you hear there? Read it one more time. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? How can you build anything worthy? Yeah. What are you going to build for me that I haven't already built for myself, right? And then something more specific there that's really interesting, I think, is this overlap in the language of what we find in Genesis 1 with the rest of the Sabbath. And then this language here that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. A footstool is a resting place in this paradigm. So what we find here is this kind of echoing of... uh, the Genesis language about the heavens and the earth, heaven is my throne. In this paradigm, again, we're talking about primitive people, right? Heaven literally means the expanse of the sky, the cosmos. Uh, God is transcendent. God is beyond us. God exceeds us. Um, I, I reside in heaven. I fill up the heavens, God is saying. But the earth is my resting place. I've made the earth as a resting place And you see that in the creation narrative. The creation culminates on the seventh day with God resting. And then there's this beautiful image of Eden with the humans being rested in the garden, God walking with them, dwelling in harmony and peace. The humans are living in peace together. They're living in peace with the earth, with uh, creaturely life, and all is good. So what we find here in both of these texts, when we're thinking about How do these tell us not so much about the mechanics of creation, but the nature of creation, who God is, who we are? What we find is that God has created for us a space wherein we can dwell together in a state of rest. And the rest itself is something like shalom or Sabbath. So it doesn't mean this is a kind of couch potato rest, right? This is a kind of rest that we find in the Garden of Eden itself. There's actually work in Eden before the fall. I think that's really interesting. The humans have a task in Eden. They're they're to till it and keep it. And we're going to get into that more next week when we talk about human vocation and human nature and what it means that when we sinned, we fell away from that. Okay, so, um, but the main point I want to make there is that God is transcendent and yet imminent. So what that means is beyond us and yet present to us. Okay, so that's what's being affirmed. So, um... What we can think of, and Josh touched on this, is that the story of Genesis 1 is about God building God's own temple, as opposed to these neighboring contrasting narratives in the ancient Near East, wherein God create, the gods create humans as slaves to build their temples. In our narrative, God creates his own temple, and then 
places us there to be partners with him rather than slaves. So that's pretty interesting. That's a really interesting distinction. In fact, God creates these humans to reign within the temple, to play something like a priestly role. So we'll also touch on that next week too. But there's also a liberation theme. When the humans enter into God's rest, God's resting place, they are not slaves. That would mean something to a people who has endured slavery, right? So um, one thing I want to emphasize about this in terms of how we read this in light of later scripture and even in in light of later tradition is that as Christians, we identify this God as Trinitarian. We're saying that a God of love, a God whose very nature is this interrelational dynamic of love, uh, creates because love seeks others to love in return, okay? So why does God create? Uh, Philosophers and theologians love asking questions that there's no answer to. (laughs) That's one of them. And, uh, but the best we can get at an answer to that is God creates because God is love and God desires others to be in communion with God. Okay, so, but when I say that, uh, it's always fun talking about the classes we teach because the undergraduates aren't impressed by the fact that we have PhDs, right? And they say, well, how do you know that? Or, I mean, what does that mean? That doesn't make any sense. Well, one of the things they love to ask when I say God creates out of love, and I think it sounds so poetic and beautiful, they say, but doesn't that mean that God needs us? Is God just needy? And so the answer to that, uh, that, you know, all these smart theologians have constructed, is this notion of creation ex nihilo. I think we erased that at some point, but that um, we don't want to say that God created because God is needy. Okay, so God... The nature of love, of healthy love, is not codependent. It's not that it needs to be affirmed. It's not an ego trip. Rather, the nature of love is such that it longs to be in a kind of healthy, dynamic interchange. And so uh, one thing that this creation ex nihilo doctrine, creation out of nothing, is affirming, is that God does not need the world in order to be God. God is already God without us. Okay, that's one thing. The second thing is that the world itself is not fashioned out of God's stuff. So that's what early Gnostics were saying. They were saying uh, that there was all this divine matter that was just kind of swirling around before it was formed into something like a habitable space. And so the earth itself is divine. And Christians are saying no to that because they're reading the Genesis narrative. And they're saying, actually... Um, God is in control, that this, is, this world is not to be worshipped, that we are to worship the one who formed it. And then the third affirmation there is that God willed the universe, both material and spiritual, so when we, we read in light of John 1 and Colossians 1, we get there, God willed the universe into existence. This means that the world is a sheer gift and that we are utterly dependent upon God for our existence. Okay, so uh, we can talk more about that if you'd like to. It feels a bit like a diversion from the narrative itself, but it does seem important to emphasize that we're not saying that God needs the world to be God. We're saying that God creates out of an abundance of love that overflows. And we are utterly dependent upon God for our existence, and yet God does call us into partnership. So I'm going to say a bit about that, and then I'll stop and we can talk. Um, But so what we find here, and I think this 
when I first encountered this material, it helped me understand a lot about uh, how it could be that creation got so messed up in the first place. So in Genesis 1, the language is that the earth was formless and empty. Now, what this is theologically is something like inhospitable disorder or chaos. The earth was just chaotic. There was nothing that was habitable. Space was not habitable. By the end, we see God moving all of this into order, greater states of order. And by Genesis 1.31, we see that the world is very good. Now, does this mean that God gets rid of all the chaos? Is there still chaos in creation? Well, if we're thinking about this in terms of how this functioned in a literary fashion for these early readers, uh, we see that there is still chaos in the creation in some form. So in the ancient world, the darkness and the sea are two metaphors for chaos. The darkness and the sea cannot be controlled. They're where uh, death and destruction can come. And so there are these metaphors there that are still present by the time we get to Eden. The sea has been given boundaries, and there's land, and there's uh, the night is bound by day. There's a rhythm of day and night. But you see, they're still present, right? They're still there. They've just been given boundaries. What do we find by the time we get to Revelation 21 and 22? There's no more what? No more sea, and there's no more night. No more night, no more sea. So where we're moving with the whole expanse of the biblical narrative is toward a point where chaos is expelled from the creation. When all things are made new, there will be no more chaos, no more disorder, only habitable space. All will be hospitable to the conditions of life. That's one way to think of it. When you say moving toward, to me, that, that makes, that's where I hear the dramatic part of the logic. Is that right? Yeah. So that's a great comment. You must, you must be a good, good student. Surprised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I just never know what you're going to chime in with from, from the corner there. Uh, yeah, that's right. It is. It, it becomes dramatic for us specifically in the sense that uh, when God places humans in the garden, He gives them a task, he gives them a vocation, which is to keep the garden and to expand and fill the earth. Well, what are they doing? What are they filling the earth with? Well, they're to partner with God to keep creating this kind of habitable space. That's one way to think of it. So what we can deduce from this in terms of this kind of the drama of it, okay, is a few things. One, even from the beginning, before sin entered the picture, the world was not intended to stay as it was. So Eden was not perfection. The world was good, but it was not yet perfect. It was not intended to stay static. This is why some notion of progressive creation, uh, you might call that evolution, need not frighten us just uh, as a concept, okay? We're not talking about naturalistic evolution, where the world is an independent reality apart from God, because that runs counter to Christian thought. But what we're saying is to affirm that the world is in process, moving towards some sort of goal, is not in and of itself opposed to Christian thinking. Um, theologians say that God creates from nothing, but then God sort of backs off a little bit, gives creation room to be, room to become, kind of gives it its own dynamism in a sense. So there's a little element of chaos left because 
You kind of have to have something like that for freedom to exist. If you're going to actually have real freedom, there has to be the possibility of real choice, real response. That's what love seeks. And, and so, yeah. Chaos doesn't mean evil or sin. Chaos can be seen as a neutral. It can be seen as like freedom, wiggle room or something. So that yeah. God's not creating a sinful world. It's a good world with this wiggle room element to it. Or yeah, unpredictability, or which can result in inhospitality, inhospitality, yeah, inhabitable space, something like that. Yeah, and again, we can say more about all of this, but I'm just kind of laying out the groundwork for these basic concepts. So um, what we want to affirm is that in the story of creation, God is calling the creation into the future. There is an intention for change, for things to get better. God is calling humans to partner with him in forming creation into a habitable space. And part of the meaningfulness of that task for us is that we have the capacity to enjoy what God has created or to destroy it. We can say yes or no. And what this story tells us is that humans said no. And what they did by virtue of that is they fell away from their vocation and rather than creating habitable space, they actually made things worse. They invited in chaos. They exacerbated the chaos. Okay. So um, there's a lot of takeaway from, from this for us in terms of our own tasks. I would say, uh, we'll get, again, we'll get in a lot more to that next week and the implications of it when we start talking about the doctrine of the human. But for now, I think one thing that we can affirm is about who God is and who we are that uh, we praise and worship God not because we are slaves in the temple, but because we have been called into a dynamic partnership with God. And, by the way, uh, part of why we proclaim good news is we say that God undid the ultimate results of that fall into chaos and sin with the Incarnation. Okay, So we've been made free from that kind of boundedness to fall further and further away from God by virtue of the God-made flesh. So, uh, again, kind of anticipating a lot that we're going to get into more as we continue with this class. But these are some of the basic concepts that we wanted to go ahead and lay out in terms of what is creation like, what is God like, and what are we like here. Yeah. To, to me, I, I think I hear the connection, especially the way Lauren ended up. <coughs> There's some concepts that, that can be a little bit abstract. But the way Lauren laid it out at the end to me helps me see that title that you have, the dramatic logic. It, it's as if God has said, okay, here's, here's the script I intend for you to play with me. I've set the stage, so to speak. I've made creation. It's a good place. You have roles. We're going to play these roles together. It's a process that we're going to work through. Am I right yeah. about that? Yeah, that there's a response that's required. There's some freedom, some responsibility, some ownership required of us that we have to actually move into the role that God's called us to act out. And when we fall away from it, God is infinitely creative in finding a solution to it without violating our freedom. That's a kind of a key point. Josh made me think of, think of some things. As a member of my day job as an English professor. But one of the terms Josh used was ambiguity. Ambiguity. In, in literature, that's not necessarily a bad word. We don't like it when we're trying to figure out how to operate the blender. We, we want the instructions to be perfectly clear. 
but ambiguity doesn't mean things aren't clear. It can also mean that what is said or what is written can mean more than one thing at the same time. And in fact, that's what we love in a good story or in a good movie or in a good relationship. It's more than one thing, and they can all be operating at the same time at different levels. That also brings up another set of literary terms that Josh referred to, the differences in how we use language. We can use language literally. In other words, we say exactly what we mean and only that one thing. But we can also use language figuratively. In other words, we can say one thing when in fact we mean something other than what we've literally said. For example, the example I use with my freshman is, if I said, my wife is a rose, what do I mean? None of them are aghast that I've married a plant. <laughs> they understand that when I say my wife is a rose, I'm saying that to me at least, she's beautiful, she's fragile, she smells good, maybe thorny sometimes, <laughs> precious, a little expensive. <laughs> but it, it means all of the it means all of those things and more than that at one time. It explains how I feel about my wife. And I say that sentence because it's a much shorter sentence than explaining everything literally. The Hebrew writers, especially in Genesis, were writing what I teach. They were writing literature. And by literature, what I mean, what we mean when we say that, is that set of stories that human beings have written over time for each other to try to explain what it feels like to be human. And literature is that set of stories that we think are worth rereading even after we know what happened. Because they tell us, because they show us what's true. And that goes back to something uh, both Josh and Lauren talked about, is sometimes when we talk about Genesis, we often get hung up about what's true or not and the notion of literal truth. But think about this difference. What makes a story true? Sometimes, especially if we're detectives or if we're in court, we have a notion of what the true story is. It's about the facts. But literature works a different way. A physics textbook can be true. But a short story, a poem, can also be true in a different way because instead of presenting us with concrete, measurable, quantifiable facts, it shows us what truth looks like in some other way. Does that make sense? It shows us what's true. The difference between a true story, the way we like to think about truth, discernible, definite, not ambiguous, versus those stories that show us the truth are the kinds of stories I think we see in Genesis. I also teach another ancient poem called the Epic of Gilgamesh. I'm sure some of you have read it. It goes way back. It's really interesting because it has an account of the flood, right, which is 
so creepily close to the Genesis story, it freaks my students out when I tell them it's much older than the oldest copy we have of Genesis. But the image it paints of God, despite sharing the same facts, so to speak, about a catastrophic flood, it tells a different story about who God really is and how He really acts and how He really feels about us. And to me, that's a really good example, I think. That's what dawned on me when you were talking. The way to look at the flood story, it's a story that shows us what's true about God in a way we can understand it. Particularly in a world that doesn't yet have philosophy or theology or physics or biomechanics. That doesn't mean we don't know what's true about God. The ancient Hebrew people understood that if you're going to tell that story about God, this is the way to tell that story. Because telling it this way shows us that God loves us even though we messed everything up. He didn't destroy us because we woke him up when he was trying to take his nap which is the way Gilgamesh tells the story. Does that make sense? So to me, that, that makes me rethink when we talk about what's true, is to remember that truth means fidelity, not necessarily positive, concrete, I'm pointing at Fletcher, scientific proof. If you ask someone who's, who's in love, do prove to me that they love you, that they love you, they're not going to pull out stats. <laughs> More than likely, they're going to wind up telling you a story. And that's why we believe they love you. That's why you believe you love them. So that's, that's my two cents. And notice there that there's a reality claim involved. That it is about reality. It's not just a story. That's one thing, another thing that students get really hung up on. And I always want to emphasize that fact that um, just because this isn't told like a modern scientific textbook doesn't mean it's not making true claims about the nature of reality itself. So that, that is here. When you're talking about you read the story and then you go back to the beginning and read it again, um, one, of the, one of the things that reminded me of is this neat Hebraic thought that Torah was actually just circular and and then God just kind of arbitrarily decided where to cut it in in this. But if you can you can read Torah, and as soon as you get to the very quote unquote end and start at the beginning again, it's just like it's the circular thing. Um, I'm not familiar with that idea, but there is a sense in which there's an understandable kind of unity and coherence to it all, so that it Torah can interpret Torah can interpret Torah. So I could say that makes sense. Yeah, because it's all the revelation. Um, well, I think you alluded to that idea, too, from a Christian perspective. You have Genesis, which is an account of an original creation. And then we have the new creation at the end in, in Revelation. Yeah, you, could, so you could go back to Genesis again, just like you suggested, and, and think, oh, I, I get this differently and better now. Yeah. Right, that, that, it's, it's not, that's not necessarily ambiguity. That's complexity. But it's, it's truer on more levels than I thought at first. And truer some, than true. Truer than true, that's a good term. Yeah. That's what art does. Yeah. Poetry and storytelling and narrative is it takes the truth and it makes it truer. Yeah. 
we, we often joke about that fiction is truer than real life. It, that's sort of what it means. I mean, it's, it's, you can tell the truth sometimes in a fiction better than you can tell it with observable facts. That's a really good point. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. It's time to go, I think. Thanks very much for your <laughs>